This interview series is brought to you by the IIEA as part of our Global Europe project. Welcome back to this episode of the IIEA's Global Europe podcast series entitled Back to the Future, Ireland and the EU at 50. The first of this two-part episode with Catherine Day, Frank Wall and Francis Jacobs looked at the institutional changes which took place following Ireland's accession to the then EEC. To begin part two of this episode, I'd like to ask our participants about how membership of the institutions of the EEC and later the EU changed Ireland's political system and the civil service. Yeah, if, if, uh, maybe I can start on that one. Um, the, the, I think the most traumatic uh, memory I have of uh, how, how Europe uh, changed things for us was that in the European Parliament from the early days, you had uh, two members from Northern Ireland, John Hume and Ian Paisley. And while they could never be seen together or be seen, certainly not talk to each other in public in Northern Ireland, in Strasbourg, in Brussels, uh, they were thrown together. They were seen as Irish uh, people. And uh, it, it uh, provided an opportunity for them to get to know each other and to, to share uh, um, views on, on the problems back home. And that's uh, over time developed and was very helpful in uh, leading to what uh, we all know as the peace process. Uh, so that was one of the, the very dramatic um, uh, instances uh, in, in, of a historical nature. I, I would... I would take up Frank's point because um, I think certainly um, in the parliament, the coexistence of two, two uh, new member states made a difference, but that also extended to meetings of ministers um, because different ministers, British and Irish ministers would be around the table of different council meetings and they could nip out for a quick cup of coffee, a chat. Mm -hmm. And I think it did two things. One, it normalized um, very close contact between British and Irish politicians. But what it also did was enlarge the agenda because previously when British and Irish politicians would meet, they were always talking about something to do with the Anglo-Irish relationship. Now they had the whole of the European agenda where we often had um, similar views. And so it kind of was a way of relativizing or broadening out um, the range of interests. And it meant that a better understanding became possible, a more normal way of interacting with a close neighbor. So I think that was a very important change. Um, there are two other things I would mention. One was um, joining the EU gave Ireland access to a huge amount of technical information and expertise that we never would have had access to otherwise, mm. because the kind of bread and butter of work of the institutions is technical. It's about technical, technical legislation, regulation, how policies are implemented. And sitting around the table with other member states, all wrestling with how are we going to implement this? Um, <clears throat> gave Irish um, civil servants um, a fantastic um, window on different ways of doing things. It also gave us um, uh, access to British expertise in particular, because we come from a similar legal background with common law and all that. Um, and that is something that the whole of the EU and uh, I think especially Ireland is, is going to miss in the years to come as, as Brexit um, takes its full effect. But that access to 
um, a huge range of expertise and different ways of doing things, I think made our civil service more nimble, more open to different ways of doing things and not just dependent on our own small pool of knowledge. And the other, the other thing I would mention is um, the role of the Court of Justice, which we haven't mentioned yet, mm. because the supremacy of EU law was something Ireland had to get its head around. No longer was our own Supreme Court um, the top level of decision-making mm. and judgment, but there was the European Court. And um, there are a number of significant cases where individual Irish citizens went to the Supreme, to the European Court of Justice to get rulings. So again, the civil service and the politicians had to factor in that they didn't have the last word on things, that there was a higher court of appeal um, and which citizens were fairly quick, citizens and citizen action groups were fairly quick uh, to, to cotton on to, um, as well as the um, infringement proceedings, which the Commission doesn't charge people for making complaints or, or raising the possibility of infringements. So while that system was always very slow to deliver a result, it didn't cost um, those who were seeking to mm. have various national policies um, either rescinded or amended or whatever. So that whole um, arrival of yet another body of jurisdiction, mm. I think, was also something that changed the way decisions were taken and the way rules and regulations were looked at. Yeah, um, just building on what, just a couple of comments, building on what both Frank and Ka Catherine have said. Um, just recently, I read uh, actually a predecessor of Frank's, um, Senator Michael Yates, who was, of course, a director in the council. But before that, for six years, he was in the nominated parliament. And he, the description of, of that is absolutely fascinating. And I actually even wrote down a quote from it because it was lovely. Uh, before we, we joined, we had no real foreign policy, okay, an exaggeration. But he said, we knew little about continental European countries and spoke none of their languages, nor indeed did they know anything about us. And when you read his description of the Irish MEPs, nominated MEPs, arriving in uh, the European Parliament in 1973, it is absolutely staggering. The lack of contact uh, of most Irish politicians with their continental counterparts. Things were mainly, as Catherine said, through the filter of the UK, and yet, ironically, joining the EU made for much more intense contacts between the UK and the EU. And that's one of the things which is now uh, going to be, uh, to be missed. But I think the fact that Ireland is now so well integrated within the EU system, it's such a staggering contrast from the days when, for instance, even contacts between the political families were very limited. I mean, the, the Labour Party joined the Socialist group, but I don't think contacts were very intense there. Uh, Garrett Fitzgerald was a little bit of an exception, and he managed to get Fine Gael into the EPP very early on. Um, but Fianna Fáil didn't, I mean, as brilliantly described by Michael Yates, he actually wanted to join the Liberal group 50 years before, uh, or 45 years before Fianna Fáil eventually did join the Liberal group. But in the end, he was outvoted and they joined the French Gaullists. That's one point. I think the second point is a, um, a gradual change in Irish attitudes towards um, policy areas. But very, if you look, and I can remember in the early days in the European Parliament, most of the Irish MEPs were on the Agriculture Committee or the Regional Committee. And one very striking change is gradually how the, the Irish MEPs are now represented across 
not all, but most of the uh, of the Parliament's committees. There's a much broader range of Irish interests. Uh, and as Ireland moved from being a net uh, recipient of funds to being now a net contributor, the whole, in a remarkably painless way so far, let's see how things uh, develop in the future, but that's just watching the broadening of interest of members in Irish members' interests in different parts of the EU's activities. I mean, I think a third point, and I'd love your views on that, is <clears throat> changing attitudes in Ireland and the Irish civil service and Irish politicians towards the institutions. But the parliament was very much seen as the weakest of the free institutions, and it was. <clears throat> but there was also a feeling that the European parliament was a less promising avenue for expression of Irish interest because there was one one Irish commissioner out of a relatively small number of commissioners. And of course, Ireland was one member of the European <coughs> Council and Council. While within the European Parliament, the most there ever were were 15 MEPs. And actually, as the European Parliament increased in size, the number of Irish MEPs went down at one stage to 11. Now it's up to 13 again. But so... If Irish MEPs were seen as not having great influence, but I think, without wanting to exaggerate the point, I think that attitude has changed and that the European Parliament is seen as a very useful focal point for Irish interests as well within the political groups. You've both mentioned Northern Ireland, and I think that if you just look at the tremendous support within the European Parliament for Ireland's position on the protocol and on the Brexit negotiations. I'm sure that's partly the tremendous work, you know, the change in attitudes towards all the uh, the institutions. And I do think that discussions on Northern Ireland in the 1980s, it wasn't just the personal conflicts between Paisley and Hume, important though they were, but I, I do also think the fact that a Danish MEP, Hagerup, wrote a report on Northern Ireland within the European Parliament, which actually still reads very well. And in many of his suggestions were kind of built on by John Hume and others and ended up in the Good Friday Agreement. And it was interesting that there was a discussion within the European Parliament where the European Parliament was beginning to be interested in Irish matters because of the violence, obviously, the troubles, but uh, where there had been minimal interest in most European countries on Ireland in the past. I think we we forget now how how small and poor Ireland was in the early years, um, and we were always looking for a handout on everything. Um, I I broke my arm <clears throat> in the early years and uh, close to my birthday, and one of my colleagues in the cabinet wrote on on my birthday card that as as, as a female handicapped migrant from a small poor country, I should be entitled to a grant, and that kind <laughs> of summed up. Um, the Irish attitude. The other thing Ireland was always looking for was derogations. You know, we wanted longer to implement any new piece of legislation, and it was considered a great victory at the time to get a derogation. My own view on that is that it was maybe a bit of an own goal, because if all the other countries are moving ahead to implement something, it meant we would have to play catch up later on. We didn't have the first mover advantage. So I think sometimes um, 
wanting to opt out temporarily of something isn't um, necessarily the blessing that it might be considered to be. It would be interesting to, to mm. look at the outcome of that at some stage. But it, it's all to say that and in the early years before Greece and then Spain and Portugal came along, we were really, apart from the south of Italy, we were the poor, um, the poorest relation in the EU. And we were small and we were agreeable um, and there was great sympathy for us. And also it was cheap to buy us off on uh, different policies because we were a small country, even with the declining population at that stage. Um, so to go from there to being now a net contributor in the space of 50 years um, and to have done it, um, you know, being a, having learned how to work the EU to Ireland's advantage, um, I think is, is a very um, positive story. It doesn't mean everything worked well, it doesn't mean everything was right, but uh, I think Ireland um, is still a success story for the EU in terms overall of the country that joined and the country that is there today, there, there is just no comparison. And um, mm. maybe in the Celtic Tiger years, we tended to forget a little bit and think we'd done it all on our own. We didn't do it all on our own. We learned and took so much from the EU and, and have given a lot and have a lot to give, I believe, in the years to come. But it's, it's, it's a story that 50 years looking back on it is a small piece of human time but it was it's a story of transformation one thing which is very uh, also we perhaps we haven't emphasized so far but which is so important are the successive irish presidencies i think the very first irish presidency uh was when was it 75 was extraordinarily important in mobilizing the irish civil service and uh, and subsequent presidencies have uh, generally been very successful ireland has been seen as a smaller country but with the interest of EU at uh, at heart, and the, that very first Irish presidency also saw a very historic event. It was actually the first meeting of the European Council was in Dublin Castle, so mm. that was an interest. But I think the the kind of realization of the Irish civil service, it was now part of this wider thing and had to broker deals with others, was hugely um, important. And there was also, of course, some great Irish creativity as well. Again, I should mention, I shouldn't just mention Garrett, but uh, uh, Garrett also innovated when the European Parliament had very few formal powers on the nomination of a commission. And he actually presented Jacques Delors' candidacy to the Parliament's, what was then the enlarged bureau, the, uh, the most powerful decision-making thing in, in the Parliament. One anecdotal illustration of how um, you know, being in the EU uh, broadened the scope of the Irish Civil Service, exactly as Francis mentions for the early presidencies, was the Department of Agriculture suddenly had to develop expertise on olive oil and wine, which for the previous X years they hadn't needed. Thank you, um, all three of you, for, for that um, interesting, those interesting comments. Catherine mentioned a, a story of transformation, so I think that leads us nicely into our, our third question, which is more forward-looking, and that is, how do you see the EU evolving institutionally in the future? And are initiatives such as the recent conference on the future of Europe the best way to achieve positive change? I think maybe the best starting point, though, is on edu is actually to rather than talk about institutional change, is actually to talk about education, the need for all European citizens to be better informed about what the European Union. Uh, is doing both in this 
educational system at all levels and obviously in the media and so on, because even in countries which are, quotes, more pro-European than, than Eurosceptic, there is obviously a huge lack of knowledge of what the European Union does. And when the, e the EU gets into troubled times or a, an individual country is led by a, a populist or other leader, uh, the fact that so many of citizens aren't so aware of what the EU does, not propaganda, that's really important, but it isn't seen as propaganda, but just knowledge of the institutional structures, the policies, what the EU is there to do, and what it's not there not to do. So I think that's one point. Um, I think a second point really important is how do, how do you involve citizens more in decision making? I was quite shocked, actually, when I read that uh, when Schumann, who was a man who I admire immensely, uh, came up with the Schumann Declaration with Monet, um, he didn't even consult the other members of the French government, let alone <laughs> wider. It was an extraordinarily top-down, secretive document presented as the needs be to just a handful of people who needed to decide, like Adenauer and de Gasperi. Um, that's obviously, uh, over time, that's become increasingly impossible. And you need to involve far more citizens. But how do you do that? Um, you need to reach out beyond the usual NGOs and associations, the usual suspects, and involve uh, wider, uh, wider thing. And then there's the balance, of course, between representative and participative democracy, which I think is going to be a really interesting question. I mean, I know you were, Emily, you were there also at the, uh, at the meeting of the, in Dublin Castle, of the, uh, one of the four citizens uh, assembly, European citizens assemblies for the conference on the future of Europe and they the citizens who'd been chosen randomly and had agreed to participate obviously loved the process but when I look at the European Council's conclusions on the conference of the future of Europe and on the citizens component they're pretty weasel uh, worded and pretty mealy-mouthed um, so and the final point of course is the question of do you reform the treaty, do you, the, the EU, without or with treaty change? Now, obviously, you can do quite a lot without treaty change, but there may be some point where you do need to have treaty change with the consequent dangers of referendums and so on. So uh, that's going to be a really uh, important question for the future. Yeah, um, there's, a, there's a lot to to think about in terms of uh, where we might go in the future. Um, the, the, the convention approach, uh, while very interesting, it, it doesn't really appeal to me. Uh, it's a, a rather random selection of, of uh, participants. Uh, to my mind, it's very easy to manipulate that kind of forum. It can, they can be guided by what experts appear, what experts don't appear. Uh, and it lacks it lacks uh, political uh, strength in that the the political participation in it is is uh, put to one side and um, it, it uh, at, the, at the end of the day you need you need political decisions to uh, change things either for, uh, take them forward or, or, or go backwards uh, what what I feel, 
has happened is that uh, there has been a rapid swing uh, towards uh, integration and deepening of, of, of the European Union without uh, uh, analyzing fully the consequences of, of that. Uh, now, you know, we have expanded to the east very rapidly and uh, we are, are suffering some of the problems of that rapidity today, when we see what's happening in Poland, we see what's happening in Hungary, uh, and we see also what's happening uh, with Russian aggression. Um, so in a way we should hasten slowly uh, rather than rush into things. And uh, I, I, I would say like that, you know, the European Union has its principles but it also has its interests, and sometimes its interests are more important than, uh, um, shall we say, uh, waving uh, or insisting on 100% implementation of, of principles. We have to be flexible because we 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 have um, 20 or 27 member states, uh, uh, different nationalities, different cultures, different languages, uh, different. Uh, political uh, and historical backgrounds. Uh, some of those democracies are relatively young. And uh, uh, we, we, we have to be careful on how we move forward. As I mentioned at the very start, uh, one of the areas I see that's, that that's missing is the lack of communication, not so much to the citizen, but to, to national parliaments. Uh, and national parliaments, uh, is uh, consists of people that are elected by 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 the electorate by by the, their own citizens to to look after the interests of those citizens, whereas MEPs get lost um, sometimes in in the substance of of what's good for the European Union and and uh, a, a lot of the the interests of people on the ground are are. Uh, shall we say, uh, lost um, rather than ignored, but they're lost in, in, in uh, the move to, to take the European Union forward. Um, and I'd like to see, I'd like to see a change in, in, uh, in, in any future reorganization, which would bring national parliamentarians together in a more formal sense with MEPs. Uh, I mean, there was the original effort of doing that called the Assizes, which uh, uh, basically they met once and never again because uh, um, the, the European Parliament just uh, took over the whole show and the national parliament uh, says uh, we're not going to participate in that again. So it, it uh, was forgotten about. Uh, but if, if we could see, I mean, one suggestion I would throw out is that uh, the European Parliament should consist of uh, two thirds directly elected and one third consisting of national um, MPs. And um, there you would get continuous interaction between the two. Uh, you would expose the national MPs to uh, the European Union firsthand. Uh, now we've seen some glorious examples of uh, Irish parliamentarians who serve time in the European Parliament, uh, like Pat Cox, who came on to be went on to be president of the European Parliament, uh, you had Brian Lynn Senior back in uh, Jim Gibbons back in the seventies, 
who were prominent ministers uh, in subsequent governments. You, um, Simon Coveney, uh, for example, currently, Ray McSherry was an MEP for a period before he went on mm. to be a very successful minister of finance and subsequently a commissioner. Uh, so the, the, there is, I think, a need to expand that uh, interaction between national uh, MEP, MPs and the European MPs in, in an institutionalized setting. For me, that would be progressive. And, uh, well, we have to wait and see. Frank, that idea is going to go nowhere, absolutely nowhere. And I, there have been numerous people like David Owen and others who've called for a return to nominated parliament or partially nominated, partly voted. It just simply doesn't work. And I do think, I where I strongly agree with you is the need for partnership between national parliaments and European parliament. I think they're complementary. National parliaments are closer to their citizens. Um, and European parliament is more specialized in, in European affairs and maybe sometimes concentrates too much in the areas where it has uh, power. But I actually, over the last 30 years, since the failed experiment of the Assises, relations between national parliaments and European parliaments have developed to, to a very considerable extent. The national parliaments all have their offices now in Brussels. They meet together, they coordinate uh, their positions. They have a number of subsequent successive treaties have given national parliaments more powers in the European decision-making uh, process. Some of them use it, others don't. The real problem has always been that national parliaments uh, very often don't feel that they have the time to work on European issues, but the opportunity for them to help shape proposals is there. I, I still feel that it's the contact with citizens which is a much greater uh, problem, and I think organically re uh, relations between the national parliaments and the European parliaments will continue to develop. And maybe the one thing of lockdown which will help that is more virtual meetings between national parliamentarians and European parliamentarians. The problem has always been that national parliamentarians and MEPs always meet in the middle of the week and don't, and then go back to their constituencies uh, on Monday, or they're there on Monday or on Fridays and haven't had a chance to meet physically very much uh, unless they're in the national capitals. Um, I think that is, is changing, I think. I think this exchange just shows that a, a lot of it is about the question of balance and, you know, everybody would find a different uh, point of balance. There, there are three things I would like to say about the future. One is, um, to pick up Frank's point, I think enlargement and managing the next enlargements is going to be a big challenge. And um, because it, uh, I mentioned the time when big countries had two commissioners and um, small countries had one. I think trying to keep the overall sense of direction and common purpose is very difficult. I, I do agree that all these decisions are political in the end. I think that's why the European Council decided to accept Ukraine as a candidate country. And I think those moments of, of, poli of political judgment are, are necessary and right, and they go above all the caution that we as civil servants would normally advise. Um, but then the civil service and the machinery and institutions have to make it happen, and it can be made to happen, but it has to happen in a structured way. And it is difficult to keep the same steadfastness of purpose 
over a period of 10 or 20 years when many, many governments will mm. change and come and go with different emphasis. In a way, I think that's why over time, the EU level has turned into kind of long-term policy making for Europe, while national governments deal with more short-term, that's too crude a division. But um, we would never have had the internal market, the Euro, uh, the accessions we've had so far, if you didn't have an institutional commitment to these long-term directions. Uh, but I do think working out how to make the next enlargements work, because mostly they will be smaller, poorer countries, with a not very democratic or stable past. So we will have to look again at ways of dealing with it, but I profoundly believe that we can do it. I talked about the transformation of Ireland in 50 years. I think the EU can do that for other countries as well, and it will be in its own and their interest as well. The second thing that comes from that is that the more we enlarge um, and the way the world is going, the more the EU has to stop being a, a largely regional player. And it does have to step up to being an international player. We have avoided that to a certain extent because we're consumed by our own internal problems and difficulties. Mm. And also we don't want to have the defense and military capacity. And we don't want to um, pay for the bills around the world that the role of the size of the European Union would require. So working that out at a time when the United States is retreating and I think is still retreating um, from wanting to be the, the only um, liberal democracy power that is prepared to be there and pick up the bill, Europe is going to have to figure out how to step in its own interests, how to step into, into some of that um, the, the gap left by the United States. The other thing I think Europe is going to have to really think about and it touches something Frank said the EU is a community of law we 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 negotiate we legislate we bind ourselves to deliver the outcome of what we have agreed and by and large we do it um, and we are addicted to that it's the only way that we can make our system work but the rest of the world has gradually at least certain big countries have given up on that. So most of the international organizations, which would be, <clears throat> excuse me, a natural extension of the way the EU works like WTO and all the others, they are really in deep crisis. So, but I believe that the majority of countries around the world would like the EU method to prevail because it's the only fair one. Something that's negotiated and then delivered on afterwards means that small countries, weaker countries also have their say and they have the guarantee that the big countries won't eat them for breakfast, which is not um, the kind of international situation we're in at the moment. So I think, again, Europe is going to have to really think hard about um, how do we want to be more active in trying to shape the new international order, obviously to suit us, but also in a way that lives up to our values. And then to come to the third question on the conference on the future of Europe. Um, I don't think that was a particularly good model because I don't think the political leadership really bought into it. And I think um, something like that if it doesn't have, if it hasn't come from the political level, if there isn't political buy-in and a willingness to listen to different ideas, then I don't think it's going to work. But I do completely agree on the need to involve citizens more. Um, citizens want to be involved, they want to understand, and if they are not well informed on a, on a permanent basis, I would say, then they will kick against. Um, if a treaty drops out of the sky, um, or a big change in policy happens and people haven't had 
any explanation as to how thinking is evolving, um, what it might mean for them, then they will use their, their power to say no. And I'm, I'm actually a big fan of citizens' assemblies, having chaired one recently myself. Um, they aren't right in every situation. Um, I, I wouldn't share Frank's views that they can be manipulated, at least not beyond a certain point. Um, but I do think they are a very good way, as opposed to opinion polls, of giving citizens time and space to think about issues, giving them factual information. And I think you get a much more reliable readout of where people are from a process like that. The problem in Europe is how do you organize them differently in different countries? Because we all have different traditions, mm. um, but still draw something meaningful, meaningful from it. But I'm absolutely convinced, and I think the evidence is there in Brexit. If you don't educate your population, if you don't bring them into the debate in some way or other, um, other forces will turn um, the argument against the EU, and it's always easier to demolish than to build. So I do think it's a challenge for the institutions, which find it difficult to deal with citizen input. But I think it's a challenge for the whole political class, the whole elite, if you like, to find some way to bring our citizens along with us. You can see it at national level. People will kick against what they don't understand even more so. They will say, oh, the EU is dictating to us or the EU isn't listening mm. to us. We will, if we don't find the right way of, of regular accessible information so that people feel they understand what's being done in their name and um, what's coming down the track and what it will mean for them, I think we will we will be in real difficulty. So I think we've got that, that for me is a big challenge, how to bring 400 and whatever million citizens somewhere into focus. It doesn't mean everybody has to follow every committee meeting, every procedure, but they do have to have a general sense that the people who are making the decisions are aware of their views, are listening, and can give them a good explanation um, if what they want isn't actually feasible. Uh, and I think we we have to work harder on that. Yeah. One one thing which uh, I'd also like to mention is which I where I do think the European Union is going to have to change. It's already changed a little bit, and that is um, the culture of consensus has obviously been extraordinarily mm -hmm. important within the European Union up to now to try to get the maximum degree of ag agreement between very often member states with very different views, giving up on uh, some of their, their favorite policies, trying to reach agreement and not criticizing other member states directly. I think now one of the big challenges is going to be without making a drastic move away from a fundamental system of consensus, how to criticize individual member states when things are going wrong. Obviously, Hungary and Poland bring that very much to the fore, and it's fascinating to see Mark Rutter tearing into Orban at European Council meetings. But that's a really big culture change uh, compared, to, I think, to the past. Maybe I don't know if I'm exaggerating, Catherine, you've got much more experience of it than me. But I do think one of the challenges is how to actually criticize member states when they're going uh, in, a, in a direction which the others are deeply uncomfortable with on rule of law or mm. other matters. And the final, final point is the, the fact that we shouldn't be too pessimistic either, because, I mean, when you think of the resilience of the European Union over incredible challenges and the recent crises and the way after very often the false start, it has managed to 
pull-through crisis and to emerge probably stronger than it was before. I think that needs to, it, it's not a ground for complacency, but it is also a ground for saying, you know, it's remarkable how well the EU has adapted given its cumbersome institutional structure. That's a good note to end on, I think. I mean, I, I am fundamentally optimistic. I do think COVID has shown that we can change enormously when we have to, and we shouldn't be afraid of change. But I also think the three of us are uh, looking back on our past, but I think for the for the young generation, they have to take the EU and make it theirs. Each and that's what has happened in the fifty years. It it has changed enormously because new people come on the scene. They see they they take some of the background and the history, but they also want to make it theirs. And um, I think that that is what will keep it resilient, alive, and vibrant into the future. Is it's capable of being molded in different ways by the people who who who, who it belongs to. It's all about networks. On that note, I, I think that is a great note to end, that, that note of positivity. I, I want to thank Catherine, Frank and Francis for their time and, and for this insightful discussion. If you'd like to learn more about the work of the IIEA, please do check out our website, iiea.com, and our social media. And um, once again, thank, thank you all, all three of you um, very much and goodbye. This interview series is brought to you by the IIEA as part of our Global Europe project.